Good morning, Covenant College. Today we continue the faculty series, Why I Am Still a Christian. Um, and it occurs to me at this moment that I don't know if there have ever been two social, social scientists speaking at all from this stage in chapel at one day. This might be a first. Um, your speaker today is Dr. Kale Horn. <laughs> Dr. Horn is a graduate of Covenant College and earned his PhD at the University of Georgia. He returned to Covenant in 2011 and has led our international studies and political science programs. Right, I am blessed to get to work with those students. They are excellent. Dr. Horn is a dedicated professor and mentor and has included his students in his research on UN peacekeeping, which has been a significant contribution to his field. Many of you may not know Dr. Horn well, I can tell you that if you do get the chance to get to know him better, it will reward you in surprising ways. Um, I'm not the chapel speaker today, so I won't go into all those ways. You might be surprised. But I will take the liberty today of saying that part of why I am still a Christian is the friendship of Dr. Horn. So please welcome Dr. Kale Horn. Thanks for having me this morning. It's an honor to be here with you. A few of you know that I have a son, Samuel, with a severe disability. Um, Samuel never met developmental milestones in his first years of life. And at age three, we finally received Samuel's official diagnosis of moderate to severe autism spectrum disorder. This was consistent with everything we were seeing, lack of speech, repetitive behaviors, processing delays, restrictive interest, inability to engage in age-appropriate play, inattentiveness to other people and his environment, a dangerously high pain tolerance, and the list goes on. And as Samuel got older, the disparity between him and other children only widened. To this day, Samuel is only minimally verbal, he and his brother Benjamin and their mom, Adriana, are my delight. But in this life, Samuel will always be profoundly disabled. Uh, doesn't show up too good, but uh, I'll give you a little context for who we're talking about. That's Benjamin on the left, Samuel on the right with Adriana. Whoa, there's Benjamin. That would be a 19-inch cutthroat caught in the headwaters of Ginny Lake in the Tetons on a five-weight with an olive woolly bugger fly. Um, Ten-year-old 19-inch trout, it's a pretty even match, and uh, it was delicious. And uh, there's Samuel with his horse. Uh, that's actually what he's doing right now, doing some, some hippotherapy. So, sweet little guy. For many years now, Samuel's disability has been at the heart of the story of why I am still a Christian. Having walked this road for a dozen years, I can't imagine not being a Christian, because this is a story about suffering, and I've often suffered poorly. Too frequently, I have succumbed to despair and lived too much at the center of my own world to the detriment of those I love the most, including Samuel. 
It's a story about their suffering, but it's also a story about paradox. And the paradox of suffering has a lot to do with why I'm still a Christian. So what's it like suffering alongside a profoundly disabled child? You've heard of the stages of grief, mourning, denial, anger, acceptance, and so on. I've experienced those in every imaginable order over and again. Those seasons can be long and dark. Samuel's birthday is always tinged with sadness for me, thinking about what will never be. And I've become acutely aware of my own mortality. Who will care for Samuel when I'm gone? And there's the guilt. Why didn't I push for a diagnosis earlier? Why didn't I see what seems so obvious now? What sort of difference could earlier intervention have made? And when we did pursue years of evidence-based therapies, could we have done more? Should we have done things differently? Did I do enough? Am I doing enough? There's a lot of guilt. Guilt may be irrational, it may be misplaced, but it still has a way of creeping up and it can devour you. And then there's the sort of things people say to you in this sort of situation, almost always with the best of intentions. It's just a small sample of things Adrienne and I have been asked or told over the years. Um, so, you know, one of them, I don't know if you guys will catch the reference or not, but, you know, is it, it's kind of like Rain Man? No. <laughs> um, or so, I, I just saw this thing about autism on Facebook and thought you might be interested. Definitely no. Have you tried vitamin fill-in-the-blank? or a chiropractor. I don't know if it works, but I'd feel like I was sinning if I didn't share this with you. I'm not making this up. This is stuff we've been told. My all-time favorite, we get this on a regular basis, have you tried essential oils? <laughs> a cousin of a friend of my mom said it totally cured her kid's autism. Don't get me started on the essential oil people. <laughs> uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially, essential oils are essentially oil. <clears throat> I'm sure they're good for lots of stuff. But this has got to be one of the craziest things I've ever heard, that it can cure a chronic and profound neurological disorder. It might be the craziest thing since the emu war. <laughs> Australia, 1932. Yes, I received a petition from about half the student body to please include the great emu war in my chapel talk. So here you go. How does it relate? Well, it's the craziest thing since essential oils because the Australians were like, you know, war's not that bad. The only problem is the other guys keep shooting back. Hey, what if we declare war on giant flightless birds? <laughs> And you get the 1932 Great Emu War. By the way, the Australians lost. Uh, <laughs> I 
Essential oil people are some of my best friends, so, you know, I'm sure it's, sure it's all good. And then there are the words that really wound. Well, God is sovereign. It's true, but it's not always helpful for someone who's in the midst of suffering. How can you know he's saved? Well, the same way I know I am, by the precious blood of Jesus. It must be hard to think about what a burden he'll be on his brother later in life. You had him vaccinated as a baby, didn't you? To my wife, it must have been something you ate when you were pregnant. Maybe he would be better off in an institution. This is God's judgment on your sin. Let's go straight to Jesus' words on this last one. When the Pharisees asked, Teacher, this man who was born blind, who sent him or his parents? And Jesus' response, allow me to paraphrase, You jokers, are you kidding me? Don't you get it? He was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. Christian children are never a judgment. They're a covenant blessing. Think about that man born blind. Jesus says he was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. The whole history of the redemption of God's people is paradox. Everything that Satan intends for evil, God turns on its head for his glory and our good. He uses weak things to accomplish his purposes. A pattern culminating in a poor child in a manger. And that life pattern is now our life pattern, though the world will never understand it. We will all suffer in this life. Don't let it take you by surprise. Expect it. It's coming. The Christian life is either preparing for suffering, enduring suffering, or recovering from it. It will happen to you over and again. I'm telling you today a little about suffering as I have experienced because, and and here is the paradox of the gospel and the Christian life, I am still a Christian because of my suffering, because I can't handle it. And I've wondered, I've really wondered, if I'd lived another life without this suffering, if I would still be a Christian, or if I would have bought into the myth of my own self-sufficiency. We all have narratives, narratives of the life we want to live, what we want to do, what we want to accomplish. We all narrate these stories to ourselves. And because we are limited human beings, we're all at the center of those stories. We are our own protagonists. But sometimes, quite often, I suspect, those stories don't come true. Imagine it working hard for the degrees, the professional accomplishments, checking all the right boxes. The future seems certain and bright, and then the unexpected happens and that future fades away. You watch the careers of your peers take off with prestigious new jobs, important publications and contributions to the field, winning major grants and awards, and you're running from therapy appointment to therapy appointment and filing and refiling endless medical paperwork and searching for resources that may not exist. 
and coming home to tears and more tears to a little boy who is so distressed and so incapable of explaining his distress that all he can do is dig fingernails into the arms and faces of a mother and a baby brother. Everyone is always covered in scabs and scars and blood. And you don't sleep for nights on end because he can't calm down, no matter what you try. And you have to go to work and just try to function. And you try to act normal in social situations when nothing is normal. And it seems like everyone around you who has heard the word autism is eager to share with you what you're doing wrong. More than anything, your heart aches for your child. You can't fix what's wrong. You wish he could know what it's like to go to school with other kids, to play on a ball team, to have a friend. And there's the constant worry of how all of this is affecting your other child, and is he receiving enough attention, enough love, getting everything he needs. And then there's your spouse. Make no mistake, any sort of extreme, chronic life situation takes a toll on marriage, and Christian marriage is no exception. The only demographic in the United States with a higher divorce rate than military families who undergo enormous pressures are parents of children with profound disabilities. It's no joke. Some of you are thinking about getting married. You need to think long and hard about why and to whom. What if life doesn't unfold as planned? I'm grateful every day for my wife. I can't imagine going through the minefields with anyone else. Consider carefully, carefully, with whom you want to traverse your minefields. And it's so tempting to be angry with God, and I have been, and it's the wrong response. It isn't suffering well. I don't want you to leave here feeling sorry for me or my family. Don't. And don't ever compare your suffering to someone else's. We all suffer. Instead, what I want you to leave here remembering is not to waste your suffering. God uses our suffering. He uses it for our good, for the good of others, and for reasons we may never know. And He uses it to bring glory to Himself, and we're right back at that paradox. Our suffering in this world is going to make the glory of the next all the greater. Don't waste your suffering as I so often have done. And God is not the author of these calamities. In fact, He cares about my suffering, about Samuel's suffering, about your suffering so much that He does the unthinkable. John chapter 17 records for us what's become known through the millennia of the church as Jesus' high priestly prayer. God the Son is interceding for you and me before God the Father. Jesus has completed His earthly ministry, and He takes on the role of high priest and prays this intercessory prayer for His people, and our great high priest consecrates Himself, sets Himself apart as the sacrifice that alone can atone for our sins, the only sacrifice that can make things the way they're supposed to be. And He asks His Father not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept from the evil one, and that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart to Himself. At first glance, we might think that Jesus is praying only for His disciples here, the twelve minus Judas. 
But let's go back to verse 20. It's clear that Jesus is praying for you. Some 2,000 years ago, your name, my name, Samuel's name, names of all who call upon him were in the mind of Jesus. Jesus there in the upper room, he prays for you and me. Though we did not yet exist, he prays for us, and he prays that you and I might be united to the Father just as he, God the Son, is united to the Father, and that the love of the Father toward the Son would be given to us. We will ponder for all eternity what it means to enjoy union with the triune God to experience the love with which the Father loves the Son, and we will never plumb its depths. And what does Jesus say immediately following His high priestly prayer that you and I might be one with the Father? John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with the disciples and crossed the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. If you know a little bit about the geography of Jerusalem and its surroundings, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem, the holy mount. He's descending into the Kidron Valley, crossing the Kidron, and entering into the Garden of Gethsemane on the other side. There are no incidental details here. Mountains, valleys, gardens are recurring devices in Scripture. There's something real that's pointing to something real-er. The Kidron Valley is steep and deep dropping away from Jerusalem at the Temple Mount on the east. The word for Kidron in Hebrew connotes that which is black, dark, and gloomy, and it is adjacent and connected to the Valley of Hinnom, also known in Hebrew as the Valley of Topheth, the place of fire, or in Aramaic, the Valley of Gehenna, of hell. Historically, it had been a place for the worship of Baal and Molech, where parents sacrificed their children to fire. Jeremiah calls it, calls it the Valley of Slaughter. It appears on and off throughout the Old Testament, always with an evil reputation. In Jesus' day, it was a dump site for all manner of refuse, as well as the bodies of animals and criminals, and it was always burning, a burning trash dump. The Kidron is what David crosses as he flees from Absalom, his son, it's where kings Asa, Hezekiah, and finally Josiah would destroy the idols set up by the people under faithless kings from the 10th through the 7th centuries B.C. And in Jesus' day, Kidron was a vast burial ground, a place of death. But get this, the Messiah wasn't supposed to cross the Kidron, not the Messiah the people expected. That Messiah was supposed to enter Jerusalem and claim political power. The Messiah they expected was supposed to stay and rule from Mount Zion. He was supposed to take charge. But the Messiah that came crosses the Kidron. Paradox again. And while Jesus and His disciples are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus will be our Passover lamb, in His actions here, Jesus is folding in the imagery of the Day of Atonement, both feasts involve sacrifice, and during the Second Temple era, in Jesus' day, we know that hundreds of thousands of animals, up to a quarter million, would be slaughtered by an army of priests. And where did that blood go? 
into the Kidron. It would literally be flowing with water and with blood, the symbols of cleansing and atonement. And in Jesus' day, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest had symbolically placed the sins of the people on the head of the scapegoat, who was to be sent out of the camp and into the wilderness, never to return, that scapegoat was sent across the Kidron. Jesus is merging the imagery of the high holy days for us. He will be the lamb slaughtered and the scapegoat sent out of the camp. God in the flesh taking our transgressions upon himself. He is picturing for the disciples for, and for us the meaning and power of the great redemptive act he's about to accomplish. Every sin we've ever committed, the sins of omission and commission, the big sins, the little sins, the public sins, the secret sins, the stupid and inane sins, every sinful thought he takes upon himself. And he takes upon himself all the suffering of his people. It's all laid on his head. He will pass through death and hell for us. And Jesus enters a garden. And it's the reverse image of the guard of the first garden and another paradox. Instead of humanity in our treachery being cast out of the garden, out of the life-giving presence of God, God will take the exile from Eden upon Himself. He will allow Himself to be arrested and drug out of the garden by the forces of darkness in order to make right our treachery against Him. And Jesus' self-imposed exile from the presence of the Father culminates on the cross the garden's tree of life exchanged for the tree of death in the wilderness. He will take up the cup of bitterness, a bitterness we cannot comprehend, in order that He might extend to us the cup of life. And though we ponder it for all eternity, and we will, you and I will never really understand the judgment of and separation from the Father that the Son endures on our behalf. Are you beginning to see the greatness of His love for you, for me, for Samuel. Fast forward, on that resurrection morn, you remember the story. The women go to the tomb, find it empty. They go tell the disciples. Peter and John go to investigate. John runs ahead. John believes. Peter's confused, and they don't really know what's going on. And then there's Mary Magdalene, always so keenly aware of God's grace and goodness to her. I want to be more like Mary. And she stoops to look in the tomb, and there are two angels seated on either side of this stone table where Jesus' body had been laid. Does that remind you of anything? The imagery here is of the Ark of the Covenant, of the mercy seat, the cherubim seated on either end. Jesus is our mercy seat. He has made the way for us to be right with our holy God. And while there's the not yet we are invited to enter the presence of God and abide there already, right now. The angels ask Mary why she's weeping, and she says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. She's still confused, wondering where her Lord could be. She turns. She doesn't wait for a reply from the angels. And John's gospel continues, chapter 20, verse 14. Perhaps my favorite moment in all Scripture Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And at once she knows him. She supposes him to be the gardener, and she isn't wrong. Paradox upon paradox upon paradox. Once again, we're in a garden or a graveyard that John now presents to us as a garden. Think of another woman in another garden. We're being presented here with a new Eden. Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall far as the curse is found. The first Adam fails to tend the garden, fails to cast out the serpent. But where he fails, the second Adam succeeds. And John, writing by the Spirit, picks up this garden imagery in Revelation chapter 22. What's in the middle of the city? The tree of life, yielding its fruit each month, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. We are here in the garden city of Zion with Jesus forever. No more sin, no more heartache, no more sickness, no more disability, no more death. Night will be no more. And the suffering we know in this life, and we will all know suffering, the suffering we know in this life will make the glory of our redemption the next all the more precious. This is the paradox of suffering. We've all imagined who we want to talk to in heaven. Don't say Jesus. That's the no-brain, okay? No pious-sounding answers. We all want to talk to Jesus. If you're like me, you imagine talking to Paul, Mary, Moses, Augustine, Calvin, whoever. Maybe some of you are thinking, Dr. Fickert, Dr. Madueme, if you're under the impression they'll be there. (laughs) More than any of the names in the Bible or in the history of the church. I look forward to having my first conversation with my son in the middle of that garden. Until then, I know that Jesus is praying for Samuel and you and me by name, taking us into the presence of our ever-loving Father. That's why I'm still a Christian.